The IPO window can be narrow. Be ready when it opens. Think timing is everything? Look again. Readiness is vital. Deloitte's audit and IPO readiness services can help companies prepare for IPO and exit opportunities. For example, a Deloitte audit is an opportunity for insight, one that can help leaders see further and deeper into their businesses and can help inform vital decisions. See how at Deloitte.com forward slash US forward slash EGC. That's D-E-L-O-I-T-T-E dot com forward slash U-S forward slash E-G-C. Welcome to Inc.'s The Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. I'm Alexa, the founder of LearnVest, author of New York Times bestselling book, Financially Fearless, and second book, Financially Forward. I'm also the founder and managing partner of Inspired Capital, a venture firm focused on the entrepreneurs of the future. Each week, we sit down with a top founder to share their story of guts, inspiration, and drive. Hi, everybody. I'm your host, Alexa Von Tobel. And this week, I'm excited for you to meet Michael Brown, co-founder and CEO of TeamShares, a financial technology company that helps small businesses become employee-owned. Michael started TeamShares in 2019 with a massive mission to help a network of 10,000 small businesses become employee-owned, creating $10 billion of stock wealth. To date, TeamShares has raised over $245 million and acquired almost 90 businesses across the country. Prior to TeamShares, Michael pursued the entrepreneur... Prior to TeamShares, Michael pursued his entrepreneurial interest by purchasing and running multiple small businesses. He was previously an investment banker at the global financial services firm, Perella Weinberg Partners, where he worked alongside future TeamShares co-founders, Alex Yu and Kevin Sheba. Michael is a graduate of the University of California, Los Angeles. I'm a proud investor in TeamShares and excited to share Michael's expertise with you all. And with that, let's welcome my friend, Michael. Hi, Michael. Excited to have you today. Let's dive right in. Let's start at the top. Talk about the origin story of TeamShares and what TeamShares is. Yeah, so TeamShares is an employee ownership platform for small business. And how it came about was the three founders. We met uh, in investment banking in New York. Kevin realized very early on he wanted to be uh, in the tech industry. And so he joined a coding boot camp called General Assembly as the fourth employee. Became the first PM and eventually learned how to code. What Alex and I did is we went off and started buying small businesses, first one and then eight, and we, we jumped in and learned how to run them. And through the course of that experience, we you know, did a couple of things. One is we made the transition from being spreadsheet people to being you know, operators and later entrepreneurs. The second thing was we took all the cost out of acquiring a small business. We got that down to ten dollars to $20,000, which compares to you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, generally. And the third thing was that our largest customer was this very uh, prominent, you know, seven billion revenue, fully employee-owned business called PCL that was bought from the family, you know, in the late seventies for something like forty million dollars. So in the space of about a generation, it went from a very successful, small, lower middle market kind of family of business to one of the most successful businesses in Canada, and along the way, created you know millions of dollars of wealth in a fairly blue-collar industry. For us, it became we became really intellectually fascinated with employee ownership, and we also became aware that there's just such a problem in selling a small business that you know there's a seventy percent failure rate in selling a small business. So we thought you could kill two birds with one stone by helping you know solve the succession crisis for small businesses by team shares helping them become employee owned. Tell us a little bit more about the opportunity that you saw and the problem with 
the current liquid nature of the asset class and what you're trying to fix? Yeah. So if you take a step back, these small businesses generally were never for sale. They were owned by families and passed down from generation to generation. And after the GI Bill, college became you know, widespread, uh, which is an awesome thing. Uh, and I meant that you know, these families generally that own small businesses do fairly well financially. And so they started sending their kids to college. And we like to say sort of like when someone goes to Northwestern and their friends are going to Deloitte, they tend to go to Deloitte too. So what happened was is that these kids didn't, they stopped coming back into the business. And that created a huge problem because what it, since there was no like real infrastructure or market built up to sell small businesses and buy small businesses, it meant that these families, which is their largest personal asset besides their home, is utterly illiquid. So there are 6 million small businesses in the U.S., of which depends on who you ask, between 2 and 3 million are owned by people baby boomer age or older. And you know, around the world, there are tens of millions, if not 100 million in sort of developed economies. Um, so that's sort of the, the opportunity set. And we actually, you know, besides having a fairly theoretical TAM, right, we actually have 70,000 uh, of these businesses come into our software every year that our businesses are actively for sale. So it's fairly significantly large market. How small are these businesses? What, what kind of topics are they in? What do they look like? And what does it mean for team shares to buy them and roll them up and create liquidity? What does that look like? So let's start with what types of businesses, sure. the range, the diversity, and then what does it mean for you to roll them up? What does that look like for the owner that you're interacting with? Yeah, so in terms of uh, types, I'd say industry is probably the easiest classification to start with. So they're technically in 40, over 40 different specific industries, but they really fall into six categories. And these are all traditional, kind of generally on average 32-year-old businesses, and they fall into six categories business services, consumer services, distribution, manufacturing, restaurants, and retail. So these are everyday family-owned businesses. In terms of financial metrics, they tend to be, in terms of top-line revenue, two to 10 million of revenue. In terms of EBITDA, on average, they're half a million dollars of EBITDA, up to a million, down to a quarter of a million. Employees, depends on the business model, but I'd say 20 to 40 is sort of normal sort of employee size. And then geographically, they're in about, about 30 states. The first thing is that, you know, we don't really consider sort of rolling them up because I think roll up connotes, you know, a specific industry vertical where the goal is to buy and sell quickly, right, within a short time frame. What, what we do is we view ourselves as a bridge to help these businesses become ultimately 80% employee-owned. So if you start with the initial problem set is that there's no buyer for these small businesses, then that means there's no buyer in the back end either. So what we've done is we've engineered a model to buy the business from a retiring owner they actively choose us, uh, you know, as their as their exit, as their buyer. We then turn and we grant we buy 100% of the stock from the retiring owner. We then turn and grant 10% of the stock to the employees. And over time, we use the the cash flows of the businesses to buy back and retire our shares until it ends up being 80% employee owned. And what that means is that these businesses never actually have to be for sale again. They'll just be permanently owned by us and the employees. Can we talk a little bit about that shift to it being employee-owned? Team Shares is changing that. Let's talk about your mission. Yeah, absolutely. We think that um, stock or equity is one of the key ways that people can participate uh, in wealth as an employee, right? And this is the reason why in the tech sector, we, it's, it's our own view that it's the number two reason why Silicon Valley happened in America, because widespread employee stock options occurred really because of Arthur Rock. Sort of one individual basically started that mission. So we view team shares as sort of the Arthur Rock of small business. 
that we are creating employee ownership for small business because we you know, invented a simpler model and we built it in software. So there's no marginal cost for us issuing shares. What employee ownership to us means, so you can't just issue shares and expect that things are going to happen. It's actually a fairly gradual state. You know, employee ownership is actually a fairly scary proposition when you do it properly, right? Including opening the books, right? It's actually a fairly scary proposition for most, um, most small business owners, right? And in fact, a lot of tech companies don't really open the books until they become public. So there's lots of frictions. That's why it doesn't really happen on a widespread basis. And you know, there are probably fewer than a hundred, you know, employee and businesses in the U.S. Uh, besides team shares. And there are 84 now in addition because of team shares. You know, we believe that it needs to have a common party that is driving it and building expertise and doing it over time. It needs to be tech enabled so that you take all the cost out of facilitating the share programs. We further believe that you need to automate the money movement, and that's why we built a neobank. And then we also believe that employee ownership to work really well, right? It's a dual benefit to the company, and the company should grow faster and become even more profitable over time, which helps create and enhance wealth. And to do that, you need to have employees who are financially fluent, right? And so financial education is a big component of our uh, model, something I know that's very near and dear to your heart and your past entrepreneurial activities. And so we do financial education, uh, both at the employee owner level and at the leadership level. And we actually, in our software, we actually open the books up so that um, employees can see the financials and see how they perform and understand how to pull levers in the business to make it even more profitable. Can you talk a little bit about what assets TeamShares has built to be able to go after this opportunity? Um, can you give us a sense of the units of business that TeamShares has developed? TeamShares, I guess maybe one way to think about it is sort of like the core competencies of what we do, because there's not really another company that's that's like, I think from the outside, people think, oh, this is like a holding company, right? And mechanically, of course, the legal, there is a holding company element to it, or they think, oh, it sounds like private equity, but very different. We have two junior investment people. We have 50 people building software. It's just not really a company that exists like us before. So I'd say the core competence of team shares are, are finance and capital markets acquisitions. That's sort of one broad bucket. Another is software. Another is education. And another is actually small businesses themselves, right? We didn't just wake up in a dorm room and sort of decide to do this business. We learned it through buying and owning and operating uh, small businesses using our own money. And having to get you know businesses that were not that great to learn learn how to manage them well and profitably. So in terms of sort of the metrics of how to think about where TeamShares is today against those core competencies, in in two and a half years we've gone from four companies to eighty four. Uh, that's ten million of revenue to over four hundred million of revenue. You know we believe we're the largest independent owner of small businesses, meaning sort of non franchise businesses, and the largest facilitator of employee ownership in small businesses. Let me break that down. Effectively, TeamShares has built a software engine to go out and roughly in six categories of businesses, two to 10 million across the country, you ingest their financials and decide to make an offer to the owner. Then what you do is you provide a transition period from the owner to the team in terms of their ownership. And then you centralize a ton of services. Can you talk a little bit about the services that you centralize to help make those businesses more efficient and run in a more profitable manner. Yeah, absolutely. So TeamShare, is, as you described, is a very online and offline business. And so you just start off by describing all the software we've built, which is to do with you know acquiring the businesses, issuing, managing equity and financials. So the offline piece comes down to you know leadership and trust is kind of what I how I think about it. 
And so most of these businesses are not big enough where there's an internal successor. We've had some internal um, promotes to president. They've actually generally worked out pretty well, but that's not the normal situation. To solve the second problem, right? If there's a financial transaction that happens, you know, for the for the owners and the family to you know make them liquid, there also needs to be a, a leadership succession. And we built sort of a Teach for America for small business, using all the knowledge we gained from buying and running small businesses ourselves, and we recruit people from a, a range of really incredible companies to come and learn how to run these businesses and lead places literally like McKinsey and Tesla to come run small businesses. But it's not as simple as just being, you know, hardworking and well-educated and kind of grit. It's a, it's a big transition to go from those types of companies into small business and a fairly humbling one. From the employee ownership aspect, there, you know, it's going pretty well now, uh, but we had to learn, you know, through a lot of iterations on how to build trust. The reality is that we are absolutely making the companies employee-owned, but in order to solve the problem, it starts with a change of control of team shares being the majority owner. And when M&A happens, it generally means mass uncertainty and probably job cuts. And so, so actually building trusted employers and helping people understand. And part of the assets that we built up are there's a lot of digital media and intellectual property that we built around uh, what employee ownership means and how to understand it and what team shares is. And that's a key component to us being able to you know, acquire you know, seven companies a month right now. Can you talk a little bit about what you feel like you will build and what this could look like in five years, in 10 years, and dream a little? Yeah, it very much is our life's work. And it's very gratifying to work on something that you don't want to do anything else. Uh, I plan on um, you know, continually re-earning my job for the rest of my life to be able to have the privilege to lead this company. Our most wild ambition right, is, is that in 30, 40 years' time, it's actually just the default in small business that everyone gets stuck. It sounds really crazy now, and a lot of people will just laugh at that, but it really was one person, right? It was one person who drove around Silicon Valley and invest, convinced investors first to give stock to the management team. And then later, when that was successful, convinced investors to give stock to all employees. It was so hard to do that even like some of the people in the garage with Steve Jobs didn't get stock. Steve Ballmer didn't get stock, and he was Bill Gates' roommate. That's our craziest social mission. Uh, level goal is that in 30, 40 years time, that all small businesses have stock. And, you know, far beyond this initial sort of retirement sale wedge, we will open up employee ownership options uh, that don't involve a retirement sale. We'll open up our software and make it available in other ways. And so that that is something that we think about a lot. Also, you know, just a lot of other countries that have this problem, right? I mean, we've identified at least 30 countries that team shares could operate in. And so, you know, all three founders have a fairly uh, international bent to us. I'm a Canadian immigrant. Alex is half Singaporean. Kevin's parents were born in, in uh, Hong Kong and Tokyo. And so I think we think about team shares on a global scale. Right now, we're really focused on the U.S. and it's a huge market, but there are lots of places and there's just lots of other businesses to build. And we, we plan on, you know, hopefully opening up our neobank um, to the outside world to get, you know, not every business is going to be ready for employee ownership day one. And so part of how we hope to expand the brand and build trust with small businesses is to take the financial products that we're building for a small businesses inside of TeamShares today and then ultimately open those up um, to the broader small business economy. So lots to do. But we think there's like to say there, there are centuries of growth ahead of us where where the 200 year idea or mentality came from was actually um, my 30th birthday. Uh, I went went to Hong Kong and I was just really amazed with these two major companies there, Jardine Matheson and Inspire. And they started off as just like 
trading companies, like import-export companies. Uh, and, you know, 200 years later, they're thriving in business and just major, major parts of the economy there. And so that was just very inspiring that a really small sort of few people uh, trading goods could create such an incredible business over time. And it really shaped how we think about building a durable business for the long term. Let's talk a little bit about how the small business landscape is evolving. What are the opportunities for small business? What are the threats to small business? Talk about that. Why don't I go ahead and define what I mean by small business? I mean, I think small businesses, businesses with under $1 million of EBITDA, so it's, it's the 99% of businesses that, um, that, are, that are not really of any institutional scale, right? And there are 6 million of those. I think there really is a global succession crisis. And I think what that means is it just goes back to there's this problem of there are not, you know, there are 3 million small businesses owned by baby boomers. There are, there are, as of today, there are not currently 3 million buyers, right, that are ready, willing, and, and able to do that. A lot of small businesses we see sort of traditional small businesses, so not describing someone who opened up a business five years ago, right? But someone who's like run a business for 20, 30 years, it's it's they are generally quite far behind the digital transformation and don't have a lot of software in them. So I would say, you know, we have looked at probably fifteen thousand businesses closely over the last three years. I think we've seen Stripe once. I think we've seen Salesforce zero times. I think we've seen HubSpot twice. So these are like giant public or near public companies that have, you know, obviously Square has deep penetration into cafes, right? So that's sort of a, an exception. But major core, even if you say something like Service Titan, a public company, a huge company that's very successful, most of the small business category, it's very hard to get software into small businesses. And this is one of the things that we're very excited about as a team shares through our relationships with the companies, through the presidents, through really understanding the problem set is you know going to be a conduit for getting small getting software into these small businesses and helping them modernize and i think you know people love to talk about how exciting ai is and how it's going to revolutionize small business i just small business is like so many steps away from ai in most of these cases this is our own opinion is that like you know a lot of these small businesses still have like a server in in an in a, like in a closet right and so i think there are a few steps uh, before ai so, so I think succession, I think modernization, and then I think the other thing, this is away from the tech sector, but I think that there is a uh, relative imbalance in because of um, you know how small businesses were started between the, the pricing and the sort of like really gritty things like pricing and working capital that the customers, anyone in the B2B space, you know, has a has a has a very sophisticated customer that is stretching them out on receivables. And really challenging them on pricing, I, I think that the margins of small businesses are probably going to come up over time um, as businesses, you know, one, as some fail, right, because of the succession crisis, and two, as businesses get more sophisticated. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of really meaty hard work to do in this space. And we'll be right back after a message from our sponsors. Michael, I want to transition to you. You grew up in Canada. And one question I always love to ask if you go back to your childhood, was there something that happened, something your parents did, the memory that really stands out as being very important for helping you be who you are today and capable of taking on this much risk and going after a big entrepreneurial endeavor? This applies to all three founders, is that all three of us were third culture kids in different ways and different applications. But what I mean by that is that either means you're an expat or you could be biracial or you move somewhere, you know, when you're really young somewhere else. And I'm Canadian, but I grew up in Singapore and Saudi Arabia. 
you know, there's something unusual when you're an expat because, uh, you know, in Singapore, you're the kid from Canada. And then when you go home for the summer and people are playing softball or in the winter, they're playing hockey and you don't know how to play those sports. You're very clearly not from Canada and you're the kid from Singapore. And so I think what is unique about being a third culture kid is that you're very comfortable being an outsider. And team shares, uh, I think, you know, that was true of our own careers. And I think us observing the things we observed, we were outsiders to small business. We were outsiders to the electrical industry. We were outsiders to employment where I was an outsider to tech, right? And so I think that just being really comfortable being an outsider was very, very important to um, sort of my own career. You've walked the walk in taking over small businesses personally, uh, starting with an electrical contract com- contractor company in Western Canada. Can you just talk a little bit about the biggest lesson, one or two biggest lessons that from that chapter that you brought into the founder seat, because literally holding the reins changes the way you can think about building the business and scaling to almost 90 companies. And soon we said almost seven to 10 a month uh, rapidly. What did that hands-on first experience give you? What, what gift did it give you to the seat you have today? Like a lot. I mean, <laughs> uh, you know, like you need to have the right strategy, but like it is, I wasted, like it was a very humbling experience to go and you know i think we're taught this in business that, that like oh, the ceo's job is strategy and this is what business schools teach it's all about hard work and grunt work it is all about grinding it out and you cannot lead a business if you do it like it's i just don't think you're gonna be successful if you don't just put in the work and grind it out and show your team that you work hard and uh, so it's not to say that the right strategy isn't important of sure it is and i think the quality of the strategy makes a big difference but i, I think Everyone wants to be the ideas person and not, a, not everyone wants to be the person that grinds it out. And that is things went a lot better for me once I realized that um, and that, you know, probably figured that out about six or seven years ago. You really do have an incredibly long term vision. Some founders sit in front of me here at Inspired and pitch me and say, hey, I want to go build this for the next five to 10 years. And that's a long period of time. Back to your 200 year business plan. Where do you think that come, comes from that? truly that desire to change the entire industry and inherent in that is an ambition and a patience. Where does it come from? Tell us about that part of you. There were a lot of people in our eyes. I'm an older millennial, uh, probably about a year younger than you. And uh, yeah, I think there are a lot of people in our generation read a book that talked about, oh, if you only achieve, uh, if you achieve this, you only need to work four hours a week. Uh, and, and I read that book too. Uh, and, uh, I did that. I achieved working four hours a week and I became depressed about three months later. I was like, this is, this is not what I was put on this planet to do. And so, so I learned through that experience that actually life was about fulfillment, right? And fulfillment comes from working on something that is one's life's work. And it doesn't matter what that is, but you need to find fulfillment. And so I think that's one part of it. And then I think the other part of it is that once we realized um, how to execute through thoughtful hard work, uh, and if you're working on something really fulfilling, that actually there's a second element that that actually there's a really intellectual interesting sport of building a large company. It's actually really interesting. Like it actually for us, the moment we decided to raise venture to build a public scale company was when we realized that oh, we don't need to do this for money. Of course, we wanted to gain financial independence. Every single founder. Like deserves that, but we could have had so much more <laughs> had we stayed in investment banking or private equity. And it wasn't about that, right? It was about like, oh, actually, 
it actually, in addition to the social mission, we're actually just really interested to try and build a giant company and to make the world a better place and try and build an interesting company that can be around for a long time. So I think, I think it's a diff, very different set of objectives that we certainly didn't get to overnight. I think it was from trying to achieve a different objective uh, that resulted in searching for more meaning. What do you think the biggest entrepreneurial lesson that surprised you? The thing that you didn't totally appreciate, what was it? Just pay that forward to everybody else that's listening that may or may not start a company one day. Yeah, there are no silver bullets, right? I think that there are certain things that, you know, people like even super smart people are like, oh, so-and-so firm just invested, you know, people are going to throw money at you now, things like that. Things that seem like that was just never true, right? And and I think that that that's just one example, right? And and there were things that you know periods where we saw certain an element of our business. Oh wow, like this is a solved problem. And then you get a let to a next leg of scale, and you're like, oh, we actually now have a new problem. And they're all solvable. But I I just think that there are no silver bullets, and so that's why I actually think it's really important for founders to be working on something that is. Or at least to recognize, are you working on something to create something sort of short term and, and, you know, that's okay too? Or are you in this for the long haul? Because it's going to really shape what you do and how you do it. Um, and, but just, yeah, realize there are no silver bullets. Last question before we move to our quick fire round. As a founder, Michael, what do you hold as sacred? What's sacred to you? I find it sacred to work with people who are kind and ambitious. And there's an interesting, tension between that and our company, because some people, not people in our company, but some people who are really ambitious are very sharp elbowed and very political. And some people who are super kind are not ambitious. Uh, But we've been able to walk a line and find people who are ambitious and kind and really civil, but also have very high expectations and want to work hard. And so that work environment is very sacred to me. And I think it's sacred uh, to all all of our colleagues at Teamsters. I love that. We're going to move to the quick fire round. I'm going to ask a question. You tell me your immediate answer. What gets you out of bed every day? My children, uh, Edward and William, they're four and six. What is your favorite interview question to get to the core of whether or not somebody is kind and ambitious? Ooh, I didn't come up with this question, but I really love the Don Valentine question. It's just like, what matters? And you just say what matters and then be silent. And it's just really interesting to see what you answer. Is there a quote or a motto that really is something that has stuck with you, something that is sort of a North Star in the way that you think? I don't know if this is actually a Buddhist phrase or not, but I saw somewhere on Twitter, once upon a time, everything is workable. And it is 100% my mantra that everything is workable and you can just work your way and think your way out of any situation. I agree. And I love that one. What was your biggest pinch me moment to date at Team Shares? What was the best day to date? So I'd say the thing that really, really surprised us is actually how we had high ambitions for what the culture would be, but we didn't, and it was very deliberate, but it, I would say that it, it, when we realized how strong the culture was turning out, we realized that around 20, 30 employees, it was very much a pinch me moment. I think there were a couple of on-sites along the way where we would be up on stage as founders and, you know, doing sort of, um, you know, prime minister's questions. And there were, a couple, there were a couple of times, like, in between a crash, it was like a very David Brun, how did I get here, uh, sort of pinch me moment. Um, and so I'm just very, very grateful to work with all these incredible colleagues. Is there a book that's left a real mark on you? It can be any type of book, business book, 
fiction, anything, nonfiction, but a book that's really, really impacted you? Yeah, I think so. The the sort of business answer that I would say for anyone in business is this book called Traction, which is a very practic- practical guide for how to run a company. It's it's something that I think is very applicable to small business in the way that I think high output management is for sort of growth stage companies. More recently, I should say I'm only about halfway through, but I'm really, really enjoying uh, The Obstacle is the Way. And I think the nuance of that book is not so much like, oh, this isn't so bad, which is how I used to think about getting through hard things, but actually to realize you're actually lucky to to work through this obstacle because it's going to make you and the company a better off. And I I I truly believe that. And I wish I wish I'd read it a long time ago, but I'm here now. I love that. I love that. And um, I've not read that book. So thanks for the recommendation. That Highly recommend it. Yeah. Last question. When you think about what you are excited about for the future of team shares. What is that? I'm really excited just for our impact. I'm, I'm excited um, for people, you know, for eventually for team shares to be kind of a household name. But we've actually had a few moments now. People have heard in public other strangers talking about team shares. Uh, someone actually came up to Kevin Chiba at a party and was and told him about team shares. Uh, so it's not a household name, but uh, the word's getting out there a little bit more. But team shares, it's one of those things where like, there's no specific thing because I think of the expression of like, it's amazing what, you know, can, it's everything feels longer than sort of like a week or a month, but it's amazing what you can accomplish in a year. And I think that it's it's hard to even know, even though we have a pretty good blueprint for what team shares can look like in 10 and 20 and 200 years, there's always new things that are being added to our, uh, to our business model. And so I'm just excited about that future. I love that. And I agree with you. It is amazing what you can accomplish when you hear. First of all, Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. Everybody out there, if you want to check out Team Shares because you're a small business owner, head to teamshares.com. And you can join us next week for Inc. The Founders Project with Alex Von Tobel. Michael, it has been a pleasure to work with you. I have so much fun working with you and I am excited to be on your 200-year vision. Um, so thanks for letting me be on the ride and thanks for joining us today. We're rooting for you. Thanks for all your support and thanks for having me today. Deloitte understands that one size doesn't fit all. Each emerging growth company has its own unique needs and issues at different stages of growth. As your startup grows, Deloitte aligns its approach to adapt to that growth. Quality is their top priority. Their approach to client services focus on the priorities and challenges of high growth companies, the road to IPO, and a commitment to the venture capital community. From startup to IPO and beyond, Deloitte is here to help. See how at Deloitte.com forward slash US forward slash EGC. That's Deloitte.com, D-E-L-O-I-T-T-E.com forward slash U-S forward slash E-G-C.